depression. It can be a difficult mental illness to pin down. It can feel different for everyone, and even those who struggle with it can have trouble identifying what it is. I mostly came to understand that I had depression through talking with my friends. For the longest time, I kind of just assumed that everyone felt this way, like weird, um, just like general malaise. For this 29-year-old, depression surfaced about six years ago and began as a feeling of being disconnected with the world. I didn't want to eat because I didn't feel like I deserved to eat. I don't know, I didn't hang out with friends because I didn't feel like I deserved to see my friends. Um, I didn't feel like I should be punishing them by talking to them or seeing them. This person uses they-them pronouns. They're a Maryland resident and work as a software tester. They sought help for their depression, trying numerous types of treatments. I visited a bunch of different mental health professionals um, and I tried different types of therapies um, and different types of medication, but it all just kind of felt like things were getting worse and worse. And I couldn't really find someone who was able to really helped me understand what was going on. Like, I still didn't even believe that I had depression. All the while, the depression advanced. It felt like being alive and, like, wanting to die were, like, constantly fighting over, like, the resources in my mind. Then their health insurance lapsed in 2018, making the situation worse. A surprise solution appeared while they were scrolling on social media in a posting from Johns Hopkins University researchers. And then one day I was kind of like clicking through Facebook and I actually found this ad for like the psilocybin study. Psilocybin, that's the psychedelic drug found in magic mushrooms. And I thought it was fake (laughs) for a while because I didn't expect there to be, you know, like a, a legitimate, I don't know, study showing up on like a Facebook ad. But they had no insurance. Basically, they were out of options. So they called. You know, I wanted to have hope again. From the Wall Street Journal, this is the future of everything. I'm Janet Babin. Today on the podcast, how the hallucinogenic compound psilocybin, once associated with 1960s drug culture, is making a comeback and giving people suffering from depression and other mental illnesses hope. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. For this 29-year-old study participant, depression was not something that happened in their family. My family's from the Caribbean, and like we've lived in America probably for about like, I think 20 years now. We came here in 99. I think it's kind of interesting because we're from like a place that doesn't really view mental health the way that like Americans view mental health. It took me like a while to realize that I was having mental health problems um, and that I was like kind of experiencing depression. Depression affects a staggering number of people, 
hundreds of millions worldwide, according to a study published in the peer-reviewed journal The Lancet in 2018. The pandemic didn't make things any easier. Last June, about a third of people who responded to web-based surveys said they suffered from symptoms of depression or anxiety disorder. Those results were published by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The protocol for treating these conditions hasn't changed much in the past few years. What we've been using is typically one of two things, either a medication that people take every day or we have psychotherapy. Dr. Alan Davis is clinical psychologist and an assistant professor at The Ohio State University. He's also an adjunct assistant professor at Johns Hopkins University. A lot of people will improve with either medication or therapy or both. Typically, if they have both, they have a better chance. But it doesn't work for everyone. Some studies report between 10 and 35 percent of patients suffer from treatment-resistant depression. And Davis says that's similar to what he's found in his own practice, working with veterans suffering from substance abuse, trauma, and other mental health issues. So he began looking for alternative treatments. Present and welcome to Psychedelic Science 2013. In 2013, Davis attended a science conference and came across a study exploring the use of psilocybin, a chemical compound found in specific varieties of mushrooms, to treat cancer patients with mental health conditions. The compound's documented effects include feelings of heightened awareness, ecstasy, visions, and changes in the perception of reality. But researchers say one of the most useful qualities is its ability to dissolve the ego, to allow a user to observe oneself from the outside. In the study of cancer patients, the drug was able to alleviate some of the anxiety and depression that can be associated with having a life-threatening illness. I was just inspired by that work. I thought, gosh, this really could have um, a strong impact in the areas that I'm working with, with veterans and with others. Davis became part of a team of researchers at Johns Hopkins University that put together a randomized clinical trial of 24 participants. They were administered psilocybin along with talk therapy to treat their depression. Enrollment for the trial took place between 2017 and 2019, and the results were analyzed in 2020. Most of them had had chronic depression, meaning decades of experiencing depression, though not all. Some had had it for a shorter amount of time. But this study was a waitlist controlled trial, so some people came in and started treatment right away. Others had to wait eight weeks before starting treatment, so we had a comparison group. The study subjects received an extensive intake exam and questionnaire to confirm they were suffering from symptoms of depression. Participants were screened for schizophrenia and drug use, as these conditions can interfere with psilocybin treatment. The big worry many people have about psychedelics is what's often referred to as a bad trip, right? Negative hallucinations. That can be scary. And... This is a kind of trip that can go bad. Participants received hefty doses of these drugs. The doses are based on weight and they vary slightly, but patients receive around 20 milligrams in the first session, a bit more in the second session. To minimize the risk of a negative experience, Davis says researchers focus on controlling what's called set and setting. They work ahead of time to ensure the volunteer's current mood and surroundings while taking the drugs 
remain as calm and comfortable as possible. And so we spend about eight to 10 hours with people before they ever get the drug, talking about what the effects are, talking about what may or may not happen when they have this experience. And that's why we have two trained professionals there with them, not only to prepare them for that, but to help them through the experience when it happens, because a lot of people have anxiety coming into the session. The person we spoke to, the 29-year-old, participated in Davis's study group in August of 2018. They had no prior experience with psychedelic drugs and didn't know what to expect. I basically went in kind of blindly. I don't have any other options. So that's kind of my thought process at the time. Um, was just basically kind of like sticking anything to the wall and hoping it would work. After fasting the previous night, the treatment can cause nausea, they were placed in a small, tranquil room fitted with a comfy couch. The whole room was like really, really cool and very comforting because like they had like these statues and like imagery in there. And like, I think one of them was like of like a mandala, a Tibetan mandala, I want to say it is. And like there was like this, you know, nice lamp that's giving off this really soft light. Psychedelic-assisted therapy participants are encouraged to bring in objects from home to make them feel more comfortable. Some bring in teddy bears, pictures of family. The 29-year-old brought a likeness of an ancient Sumerian goddess, Inanna. Once they were settled in the room, they were given two pills in a wooden cup. The therapists told them that the psilocybin would take 15 to 30 minutes to start working. In the interim, they were told to put on eye shades and headphones that would play a selection of music they could choose from. Classical, Tibetan chanting, African drumming, and some modern music too. Once the drug took effect, the participant says the first session became a kaleidoscope of mental images and sensations. I remember being in like, it felt like Mount Olympus, the fall of the gods, like, you know, above all the clouds and stuff like that. And then one of, like, my gods walked up to me and she gave me a key. I fell through the clouds and I fell all the way down through the earth and I ended up in hell, which is really strange because I don't remember being scared even though I was in hell. And I remember asking, like, hey, you know, why am I here? Um, and it was like Hades leading me through hell, kind of just like showing me around for like this very cold and desolate place. And he was like, of course, this is where you would come. Like, this is where you've made your home. The self-revelations continued throughout this day-long session and turned intensely personal. I remember like hearing like the beats come on and I felt myself in like this place where like all of my ancestors were. And I was really close to my grandfather when I was a kid, and he died probably around when I was like four. And I saw him kind of like materialize. Um, and he walked towards me with like this bushel of bananas, um, which is what he used to do when I was younger. And then he handed one to me. And I always kind of was afraid that if he was alive, he would be disappointed in me. And I remember asking him, you know, what am I supposed to do? Like if my family or like my parents and like my siblings can't accept me. And he said that he'll always be there for me and my ancestors will always be there for me. And I, I don't know, I just like that scene, just like it meant so, <laughs> it meant a lot to me. After about seven hours, the drug started to wear off. 
when it was over, you know, you're still kind of like feeling it, but just not as like intensely. So it's just basically like this really happy kind of floaty feeling and we couldn't drive obviously. <laughs> so like I had to have my sister pick me up. They ended the experience hungry and exhausted. As for the depression, not much appeared to have changed. Then they tried the psilocybin trip once more, this time with the stronger dose. And after that, they say they experienced a palpable shift. It felt like I was back into the world again, like I was back in reality. A lot of people said that not only was their depression different, they felt like they had come out of a dark hole that they'd been in for years, but a lot of people, regardless of whether their depression was gone or, or reduced, said that there was something really meaningful, uh, different about how they viewed their life. Initial results for the study, reviewing outcomes from up to a month after the sessions were completed, found that psilocybin plus therapy was more than four times more effective than other treatments such as medication alone. At one week, 58% of the sample were in complete remission from depression. That actually lasted up to four weeks after where 54% of people were in complete remission. And we're now studying those same people up to 12 months after to see how long that remission lasted. The rest of the participants in the study were not in remission. They were still experiencing clinically significant depressive symptoms. Researchers have yet to publish the results of longer-term outcomes for all the participants, their condition up to a year after treatment. And this was a small study, just 24 people. Some scientists remain skeptical of this kind of treatment, not just of psilocybin, but of the validity of the data and outcomes for all studies involving psychoactive substances. Psilocybin can mimic symptoms of psychosis. Davis and others say study participants must use these drugs under close supervision and in addition to traditional therapy. But also, another potential downside to psychoactive studies is the lack of double-blind research. That is, a study in which neither the participant nor the experimenter know whether they've received the drug or a placebo. Mittal Mehta is a professor of neuroimaging and psychopharmacology at King's College, London. He co-authored an opinion piece about this issue in the peer-reviewed journal Frontiers in Psychiatry. So it's pretty obvious that you've, you've taken a dose of psychedelics. It can be quite clear that you've taken the active compound. So the person and often the researcher will know what's been given because the drug will have a profound effect. In studies of potential treatments for depression, Meta says a significant number, around 40% of the participants' response, can be happening because of this placebo effect. And we know from neuroimaging studies that have tried to pick up on the placebo effect that you can actually get changes in circuits associated with depression during placebo administration, when the expectation of potential symptom change is there. So what you want to do is understand how much of your drug effect is over and above this placebo response. And you need to be able to control for expectation. The solution is to create a control group that gets a credible placebo drug, one that can mimic the effects of psilocybin enough so that no one knows if they're getting or administering it or the real thing. 
These drugs are called active placebos. They're not a sugar pill. They actually cause some of the anticipated effects of psychedelics, like nausea. But with psychedelics, oftentimes, some people can still just tell if they got the real thing. Anthropologist Nicholas Langlitz teaches at the New School for Social Research in New York. He wrote the book Neuropsychedelia, a book about the revival of psychedelic research. Langlet says another pitfall with this new round of studies is all the attention it's getting and how that can influence participants. Because it's a sexy topic and the, the media reporting is very positive, which means that people bring very positive expectations to these trials. And it's well established that the effects of psychedelics in part depend on so-called set and setting, right? On, on the mindset of the patient and on the setting in which the drug is being used. These effects can reduce the research to a self-fulfilling prophecy. But perhaps what concerns Langlitz most about psychedelic research is the potential of these drugs to increase suggestibility to the point of inducing false memories. It can create situations that are highly, well, let's say ambiguous ethically. For example, there have been reports of people suddenly remembering, in scare quotes, some abuse situation in their past. Now, is that hallucinatory? Is that part of a vision that they're having that maybe should be you know, interpreted symbolically? Or has that actually happened? This problem is getting aggravated with psychedelics it makes it much more difficult for patients to actually distance themselves from the experience. So, you know, I mean, these are psychotherapeutic challenges. Unease over psilocybin treatment is not new. The use of psychoactive substances has a long history, and a lot of it's been controversial. We'll talk more about that after the break. WSJ Special Access gives you a front row seat to some of the Wall Street Journal's most exciting content, like The Quirkier Side of Life, a new series that features the fun, surprising stories our reporters come across. The chief executive walks 10,000 barefoot steps every day. He recalls stepping on a bee, which put him off earthing for a couple of days, but he got back to it. Check out The Quirkier Side of Life on WSJ Special Access, only for WSJ subscribers. There's evidence that humans have used psilocybin-like substances for thousands of years. Research published in 2019 reported that scientists in Bolivia had found a thousand-year-old pouch in the Andes, and it contained organic residue from psychoactive plants. I came across this uh, this uh, modality because I was myself having challenging experiences with trauma, and I was seeking my own healing. This is Francoise Borzat. She's a counselor and guide who uses psychedelics, especially psilocybin mushrooms, therapeutically as part of her California practice. Borzat did an apprenticeship with a teacher named Julieta Casimiro Estrada, a member of the Mazatec indigenous population of Mexico. That's her teacher singing during a ceremony we're hearing in the background. 
Porzat credits indigenous populations for sharing their knowledge of psilocybin and teaching Westerners about the benefits of these substances. If the Mazatec had not agreed to uh, share their knowledge and ceremonies with uh, non-indigenous people, we wouldn't be where we are now. So essentially, we owe them everything. Modern-day counselors and therapists like Borzat are part of psilocybin's re-emergence as a viable treatment for depression, as well as other mental health issues. The science of psychedelics emerged around the end of the 19th century and began with research into mescaline that was found in peyote and other cacti. LSD was discovered just before World War II, first synthesized by Swiss chemist Albert Hoffman. And then towards the end of the war, he, he started looking at it again and then discovered its remarkable potency and psychoactive properties. This is Robin Carhart-Harris. He heads the Center for Psychedelic Research at Imperial College in London. And so then into the late 40s and particularly the 1950s, there was a lot of scientific interest in LSD. Um, and then into the late 50s and 60s, Albert Hoffman again discovers and synthesizes psilocybin. Then a lot of politics happened in the U.S., a trio of now infamous Harvard psychologists and researchers, including Timothy Leary, started doing experiments with psychedelics. They were accused of giving the substance to undergraduates. And even though they denied wrongdoing, Leary and other researchers were ousted from Harvard. Leary landed in prison for drug use and escaped, all the while becoming a sort of champion of the growing 70s counterculture. His message was part of this strong swing at the time to a more open and less puritanical society. Leary and drug use became President Richard Nixon's foil and rallying cry. America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug abuse. I have asked the Congress to fuel this kind of an offensive. This will be a worldwide offensive under President Nixon, psychedelic substances were issued the strongest warning label there is in the U.S., Schedule One, meaning they offer no medical benefit but have a high risk for abuse. Nixon's crusade was linked to his political success, but it destroyed Leary, and the propaganda effectively put the kibosh on research into psychedelics, says Dr. Alan Davis. The real humdinger of this whole thing is that the very definitions that the government used to classify this substance and other substances like it as some of the most harmful actually did not fit even at the time. Psychedelic research slowly started to pick back up in the 1990s as more scientists rediscovered that early research. But the Schedule I drug classification, it remains unchanged. And Davis says even as a psychologist, he's experienced how the stigma around psychedelic drug therapy lingers. Up until the last year or so, I had other professionals in my field not doing this specific kind of research, really questioning whether this was something that I should be doing with my career. Some of my, you know, prior mentors even in different areas had said, this is questionable. You need to be careful about whether your scientific integrity can be called into question because you're going to go study this topic. 
A big breakthrough for psychedelics came about a decade ago, when researchers were able to take images of people's brains after they had received large doses of psilocybin. Psychedelics rev up receptors in the brain for the hormone and chemical messenger serotonin. Serotonin is sometimes referred to as the calming chemical, and it's responsible for regulating things like mood and memory. Again, this is Robin Carhart-Harris, head of the Center for Psychedelic Research at Imperial College London. The effect of that is to increase plasticity, which is the ability of the mind and the brain to change, to adapt to its present conditions. And that property allows psychedelic experiences to change us, change the way we think, change our beliefs, and facilitate therapeutic change. Carhart-Harris conducted several brain imaging research projects with psychedelic drugs that measured the electrical activity of volunteers' brains after they took them. Because of the vivid hallucinations associated with psychedelics, researchers expected to see the brain's visual cortex activated. But that's not what happened. Instead, the MRIs and other imaging showed that the visual cortex gained hyperconnectivity with other regions of the brain, including places that normally don't connect or talk to each other very much. At the same time, parts of the brain that do usually have a lot of interconnection, they got quiet. In his research, Dr. Alan Davis observed that too. He says the part of the brain that communicates less or kind of switches off under psilocybin, it's considered one of the more primitive sections of the brain. It's called the amygdala, our emotional center. It's where our fight and flight response lives. And it's one of the regions responsible for the negative and self-critical voices in our heads. And for people who are depressed, that amygdala is overactive, attending to negative things in the environment. Meaning that if someone's walking down the street with depression and they see someone with a smile on their face on one side of the street and someone with a frown on the other side, their brain is going to selectively attend to that frown a lot more than it will to the smile. After the treatment is over, the brain seems to undergo a rewiring of sorts, kind of like a computer getting a reboot. Carhart-Harris says it's similar to the way that a major life event can become psychologically transforming. And that is probably one useful way to think of what psychedelic therapy is doing when it works into the long term. There's something about this profound shift in the way that you look at yourself, you look at your existence, you look at what it is to be alive and what life is, and it sticks. That mirrors what happened to the 29-year-old we spoke to who participated in the psilocybin study after other treatments for their depression had failed. They say the experience allowed them to connect with emotions they'd been unable to access for years. I just felt like all of this power coursing through me and I felt all of these emotions hit me at once, which was strange because I hadn't felt emotions like that in like a really, really long time. In addition to the study at Johns Hopkins that the 29-year-old patient took part in, New York University and UCLA have also completed studies on the use of psychoactive substances in mental health treatment that showed promising results. This is on top of numerous other studies over the past decade on psychedelic-assisted therapies. 
And there are some new legislative changes that could ease the way for broader use of these drugs, how that could impact the future of psilocybin treatments for depression and more, coming up after the break. Join the Wall Street Journal at the Future of Everything Festival on May 21st to 23rd in New York City, where diverse global newsmakers share unique perspectives on navigating a changing world. Immerse yourself in live performances, explore pioneering technologies, and indulge in the city's inventive culinary scene. As a podcast listener, enjoy 20% off current ticket rates with code PODCAST. Visit wsj.com F-O-E-F podcast to secure your spot. Despite promising new studies with psilocybin, most use of psychedelic drugs has been largely underground or limited to small research studies. But that is starting to change. Several states have voted to legalize medicinal or recreational marijuana over the past decade, but THC is not the only drug on the ballot. We Oregonians have the chance to vote on a measure that's the first of its kind, initiative centered around psilocybin mushrooms. In November 2020, Oregon passed Measure 109. It legalized the therapeutic use of psilocybin and became the first state to do so. While Oregon has been a trailblazer in legalization, cities like Denver, Oakland, and Santa Cruz have all decriminalized psilocybin. And the states of California, New Jersey, as well as Washington, D.C., are also looking into decriminalization. And there have been changes on the federal level, too. In 2018 and 2019, the FDA allotted psilocybin and other psychedelic drug therapies something called breakthrough therapy status. It makes it easier to use the drug in a treatment setting. These kinds of decisions are making some in the research and business community hopeful that the drugs will become widely available for medical use within the next several years. In Oregon, state officials expect to roll out a program by 2023 that would license psilocybin therapy treatment centers. There's no plan to allow the drug to be used at home or to show up in gummies or dispensaries. And the drugs will not be what some call medicalized, meaning you wouldn't need to go through a psychiatrist or medical doctor for therapeutic psilocybin sessions. Despite those actions in Oregon, Dr. Davis doesn't expect this to be widespread. This would not be a prescription that you just picked up at a pharmacy and went home with. You would get your dose uh, under supervision and would be there at the clinic for the same day, very similar to how we do it in the clinical trials. Still, the government activity has already activated entrepreneurs. Many foresee a shift for psychoactives, from legalization to commercialization. My name is Ronan Levy. I'm one of the co-founders and the executive chairman of Field Trip Health Limited, which is one of the first psychedelic companies that ever emerged uh, in recent history. Levy is a lawyer by training and was senior vice president at a company that produced medical and adult use cannabis. His new company, Field Trip, is focused on using the hallucinogen ketamine for depression, anxiety, and pain relief. The company already has centers in five cities in North America with plans to expand internationally. Despite the existing regulatory hurdles, Levy predicts the psychedelic drug market will eventually be larger than the cannabis market, but he does foresee hurdles for investors. 
the classic psychedelics like psilocybin or MDMA or DMT or LSD, they're not patentable. And so investors, I think, really need to do a deep dive in understanding the patent landscape and, and understanding the strategic defensibility of different companies' business plans and how they plan to make a return on investment. Field Trip's part of this growing list of companies marketing psilocybin for treatments other than depression. Some of this activity has research pioneers like Robin Carhart-Harris concerned. I don't know. I could see bad things happening. I could see people taking too high doses and there being reckless and irresponsible use. These are powerful drugs. And Carhart-Harris says allowing them to be administered outside of a medical setting could backfire. Meanwhile, Davis at Johns Hopkins and OSU cautions that the hallucinogen in magic mushrooms is not a panacea. This is not going to eradicate the issues of depression or substance misuse. But hopefully it's another tool in the belt that we can help people with those issues. And hopefully we can help more people than our current treatments have been able to. As for the 29-year-old who took part in the psilocybin study two and a half years ago for their depression, they say this treatment has been and continues to be a game changer. It felt like I was allowed to be a person again. And like I was allowed to be in the world again and I was allowed to dream and expect things and hope and like try and fail and not feel like completely destroyed by it. So like, yeah, it was honestly miraculous. (laughs) I definitely know that it saved my life. I don't know, it affected me, I think, more than anything has in my adulthood. So I'm very grateful for it. That's not to say their depression abated entirely. They say there are still some bad days. But they're far more spaced apart and manageable than they were before the psilocybin treatment. The Future of Everything is a production of The Wall Street Journal. Stephanie Ilgenfritz is the editorial director of The Future of Everything. Lee Camping-Carter is our deputy editor of The Future of Everything. Special thanks to the Richard Nixon Presidential Library, Johns Hopkins University, and to the participant for being willing to share their story. Our fact checker is Maddie Bender. Our sound designer is Sarah Gibble-Laska. Our producer is Casey Georgie. Kateri Yokum is the Wall Street Journal's executive producer of audio. I'm Janet Babin. Thanks for listening. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. Coming soon from the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts.